Exposing the Illegal Empire with Shane Britton. Over the past couple of episodes, we've heard from the OECD and from law enforcement experts. But I wanted to hear some more about the links between illegal trade and some specific other crime types. In this case, human trafficking. I couldn't think of anyone better to help us fill us in on this connection than Matthew Friedman, the CEO of the Mekong Club. Matt is a global expert on modern slavery and human trafficking. He's an award-winning filmmaker, author, and philanthropist. Matt regularly advises governments and intelligence agencies and is considered by many, including Crime Stoppers International, as the leading catalyst of the anti-slavery movement in Asia's business sector. Welcome, Matt. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, An award-winning filmmaker? Tell me more. What is that? I worked on a number of films that basically uh, helped to address the issue of human trafficking. One was a documentary, which was nominated for an Emmy, and another one was a full-length motion picture that focuses on the issue of modern slavery, which won a bunch of awards internationally. That sounds fantastic. Now, can can you help our listeners understand just what exactly is human trafficking? Well, human trafficking is where a person basically is tricked and deceived into a situation where they lose control of their life, basically associated with kind of a labor situation. Let me give you a couple of examples. A woman or a girl who's tricked into a situation from Nepal to India where she ends up in a brothel. She's forced to have sex with 10 guys a day, every day for a couple of years until she gets a disease. That That's one example of human trafficking. There's about 6.2 million women and girls in that situation. Or a 15-year-old boy who's tricked into going onto a boat, thinks it's going to go out for about three months, but it stays out for four years. This poor kid will end up working 17, 18 hours a day, every day. If he doesn't, he gets beaten. He gets tortured. The only food he'll have the entire time he's there is rice and fish, nothing nutritious. Uh, If he gets sick, if he gets injured, they throw him off the side of the boat. At the end of the four years, he gets nothing. This is an example of what's called forced labor, and about 27 million people are in this situation. So what we're really talking about is a person losing control of their life, forced into a situation to work, and they really don't have access to getting out of that. They're such tragic stories. You must see some really concerning and and eye-opening case studies. How do you deal with the impact of some of those things? Well, I mean, it's just one of those things that you have to kind of desensitize yourself to this. Over the last 35 years, I've been working on this, and I burnt out about three times Yeah, uh, where I actually got depressed, and I just felt like I couldn't do this anymore. But, you know, we don't pick our causes. Our causes pick us. There's something about this particular cause that's in my DNA. Whenever I get to a point where I just feel overwhelmed, I kind of regroup and then come back again a little bit stronger than I was before. But you really have to do what a lot of uh, crime fighters do, which is to desensitize yourself to the crime and just get on with the work because otherwise you can't be affected at what you're doing. And I guess you know you're making a difference as well, right? So that's got to be a really powerful motivator. Well, in some ways, we aren't. You know, there's 50 million people estimated to be in modern slavery. In fact, there are more slaves today than any time in history. According to the kind of trafficking in persons report, which tracks you know, the number of cases where victims are rescued, 
Last year, it was only about 108,000, which is 0.23%. This percentage that we're talking about has been like this for the last three, four, five years. So we're not even getting a half percent or a percent of victims being rescued. So there's a lot of organizations that are attempting to do this, but the people that we're dealing with, excessive profits, 150 billion US dollars a year, second only to drug trafficking. And so they have tremendous amount of money. The money that's available to fight this is about 350 million, which is 0.23%. So we have to do a lot better job to come anywhere close to really having an impact in addressing this crime. You know, Matt, I think that's the the natural segue into talking about illegal trade. The the volumes are absolutely staggering, uh, but also just just the fact that we're dealing with such a pervasive issue that's happening all around the world. So, what what is the connection between human trafficking and, and illegal trade? Well, there's various different connections. For example, uh, you have sometimes people who are trafficked into a situation where they move drugs from one place to another. So the trafficking part gets them into a situation where because of debts or threats, they feel like they have to do this, and then they're doing another illegal type of activity. Um, We're seeing in Southeast Asia now a new emerging form of human trafficking where young, educated, computer literate people from all over Asia are told that they can get a great job in Cambodia, 5,000 US dollars a month. Entry level, that's a tremendous amount of money. So they take the opportunity, go to Cambodia, they get picked up at the airport and brought to a center where they're forced to scam 14, 15, 16 hours a day, every day. If they don't uh, earn a certain amount of money, they're beaten, they're tortured, they're tasered. Sometimes these companies sell these individuals between companies. If the person isn't generating anything, they'll sell this person back to the family for 20, 30,000 US dollars. There's literally tens of thousands of people in this kind of situation. So you see the nexus between illegal activities in all different ways because organized crime is very organized. And like other um, kind of groups that develop franchises, if a particular group is doing gambling and then they realize that they can also run girls or they can do human trafficking or smuggling or something else, and they have the cash to be able to do this, they often enter into these franchises, which is, allows for the nexus between illegal activities and human trafficking to take place. And it really just turns the person into a commodity, doesn't it? That they just become an item to, to trade for dollars. Absolutely. Actually, I had a case where uh, there was a Bangladeshi who was in a prison and I interviewed him. And initially he said, well, you know, I'm not a trafficker. I'm I'm a victim. But, you know, the thing about most criminals is they're narcissists. And so if you go and say Muhammad over there is the best criminal I ever met and Ali is standing in front of you, he'll all of a sudden say, well, I'm better than him. And he'll start telling you everything. <laughs> and so in one particular case, he talked about he needed kids to work in a factory. What this factory did was to take very toxic liquid from 50-gallon drums and put it into small containers. When they trafficked adults into it, their mind would basically be destroyed in three months, but a child could last for six months before that process happened. So he would go find somebody who was in debt, get them to kind of kidnap kids, take the kids off and put them into this type of factory. And so what we're dealing with here is just some of the worst possible combinations of people who just don't care about the victims. They'll do, they just, you know, these are kids taken away from their families. Just imagine that situation. It's horrific. And it sounds like some of the mid-level people as well are, are, 
to some degree victims themselves that they've been manipulated into a scenario by these organized crime networks to either obtain people or children and and feed them into this this mechanism well in this particular case the case i just mentioned uh there was a rickshaw walla the person who picks up the kids from school who had a gambling debt and the organized crime people knew that and basically said you either give us these kids or we're going to cash in on that gambling debt and that is your life and so yeah there's all kinds of leverage that can be used basically to get people to do things uh based on criminal activities that they're associated with can you share anything more for our listeners about who who the people are behind this we mentioned organized crime syndicates so so who are they where are they based are they big groups or small groups I think it's a combination of all different types of people. And, you know, the interesting thing about criminality is that there's kind of a continuum. On one end, you have people who are absolutely evil. They don't care about anybody else. They're often narcissists. They will do any crime. They will hurt people. They will abuse people. They'll do anything. And then the other side of the continuum are people who kind of crossed into criminal activity but they didn't really kind of recognize it until one day they would kind of wake up and say, wow, I'm doing criminal activities. And then a lot of people in between these two extremes. We've worked with people who are, for example, in factories exploiting people, but not to the extent that it's really horrific and help them to understand that by you doing this, you are going to lose your business. Eventually, somebody's going to come here and shut you down or the companies that are working with you, if it's a factory, are going to stop doing this. And so there is a percentage of criminal behavior that can be uh, changed. But when it comes to those others that are at the other end of the spectrum, I, I just, I, I mean, I've seen evil in, in real life. It is a horrific thing to see what human beings will do to other human beings. Are you seeing the same patterns and behavior from these groups in, in different regions of the world? So are they, are they different MOs between Southeast Asia and Africa or Europe or the Middle East? Interestingly, when it comes to human trafficking, there's about four or five different scenarios that are consistent all over the world. Yeah, sometimes it's based on grooming, where you gradually get a person through a particular process. Sometimes it's displacing a person from one location to another. And then once you get them there, then you're able to oppress them because they're in a foreign country. Sometimes it's uh, basically a scenario where there's indebtedness and that indebtedness is fraudulent and illegal, but it results in the person being told you can't leave because you owe this debt. So all of these kind of patterns that I'm talking about are interestingly consistent in Africa, Latin America, and in Asia. And so, you know, a lot of people say it's really complex human trafficking. In many ways, it isn't. If you can figure out what these, uh, what these approaches and these routines are, you can really intervene and make a difference. And do you think governments are doing enough to address this, either inside their own countries or through international cooperation? I don't think that any government is coming anywhere close to their full potential in addressing this. And, and again, it comes down to the numbers. If we're talking about less than 1% of the victims globally, there's no country that's really kind of stepping up to the extent of what it is that we're dealing with here in terms of this particular crime. Now, when it comes to what governments can do, they need to have laws. They need to then have people who will operationalize those laws. You need court systems and prosecutors and police all understanding this particular issue. There's a lot of things that governments can and should be doing that they don't. 
often what we see is they spend more time on the kind of shelter and recovery and less on the criminality side. And as a result of that, we continue to see many criminals get away with this particular crime. You know, we've spoken on this podcast a little bit about counterfeiting as well as illegal trade. And and do you see that some of the people who are uh, in modern slavery scenarios or who are entrapped, uh, are they working on counterfeit products? Are there those connections as well? Well, there's an interesting uh, scenario that happened about 12 years ago. I was associated with a group that was doing a raid and rescue with the police in Thailand. And they went there specifically to look for wildlife trafficking, you know, goods. This would be tiger skins and rhino and so forth. So they did the raid. And then right there in that same facility was a brothel that had 14-year-old girls that had been trafficked and all kinds of counterfeit goods, cigarettes and Gucci bags and various other things that had been made counterfeit. But the law enforcement went there for wildlife trafficking, so they ignored the other crimes that were taking place. And so basically, I think what we need to do is to help law enforcement officials who are part of these raids to really get down and dirty when it comes to saying, looking to see whether or not other things are happening in that same location, because they often are. As I say, franchising into a variety of different types of criminal behavior is quite common as you start to get resources. So human trafficking would support for perhaps the purchasing and distribution of illicit cigarettes or, you know, smuggling would help with gambling activities. And so the nexus between what's happening within that syndicate offers the opportunity for that capital to be reprogrammed into another criminal crime, which often includes human trafficking. Because it seems to me that this is just financial crime, right? Uh, it, there's people involved and there's horrific stories of some of those individuals, but but they are just a commodity to the crime groups and, and it is just a function of profit just to try to make the maximum amount of, amount of money if possible. Absolutely. But, you know, when it comes to the financial side, actually the banks are stepping up and getting very involved and helping to address this issue. The reason why they're doing this is because they have to. $150 billion generated from illicit activities like human trafficking, if any of that money gets into a a legitimate bank, it's money laundering. There was a bank in Australia that was fined 1.3 billion Australian dollars because they didn't pay attention to online sexual exploitation of children in the Philippines, and they had that huge fine. And at the same time, their name was associated with modern slavery. So what banks are doing is developing typologies, which kind of tracks the criminal activity with kind of a victim and then looks at transactions, and then they identify which of those transactions could be nefarious. They package them, and then they run run it against big data. For example, there was a um, nail salon uh, chain in the United States uh, run by a Vietnamese group. But an accountant found that there were transactions taking place at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, when in fact the uh, the official hours from were from nine in the morning till nine at night. When they looked into it, they came to realize that there was sex trafficking ring in the same location. So by taking those red flag indicators, um, you know, uh, transactions after hours, around $200 for a particular type of business, packaging them, and then running them across the big data, you can find other criminal activities that then get reported to the authorities. And so this is one way that the uh, banking industry is stepping up related to the financial transaction side of this. And is that consistent across the banking industry? Are, are a lot of the international banks really having a proper look at this, or, or are they just paying it lip service? 
The major big transnational banks are the smaller banks because they don't get penalized in the same way internationally with these fines and penalties are not doing as much with this. But I think gradually over time, there will be legislation within countries to ensure that all banks take this very seriously. As you say, the, the volume of money we're talking about, it has to go somewhere. Uh, so following the trail of that, that funding would certainly be a good way to, to investigate and take down some of these rings. And one of the things that we've done is uh, brought law enforcement and the banking community together to share insights into their very respective worlds. Now, the banks can't talk about specific cases because of privacy legislation, but they can share anonymized information about how these transactions take place. And then law enforcement can take this information. And when they are basically uh, looking to collect evidence, can include more financial indicators in there. And so what we're trying to do is to get the banks and the um, law enforcement people to come together to be able to come up with stronger cases to really go after the groups that are doing human trafficking. So that sounds like you see education as being one of the major features here, both in the private sector, but also with law enforcement agencies. I think awareness raising is one of the fundamental uh, things that has to happen. You know, I did a presentation tour across North America, 53 consecutive days, 91 presentations, 1,200 companies, 12,000 people. And I would say less than 10% of them knew even 25% of what I was talking about. So if you don't know about an issue, you're not going to care. If you don't care, you're not going to do anything. And so there has to be a significant increase in uh, general awareness for law enforcement, for you know the corporations, for the general public, for everybody. Because once again, you have to understand the crime before you're able to kind of step up and do something to address it. Yeah, absolutely. I have to put a plug in here for our Crime Stoppers International e-learning platform, CSI Learning. We we have a human trafficking awareness course up there, and hopefully over the next couple of months, we're going to to keep working closely with you and the Mekong Club to to expand that offering and really let people know here's some of the indicators to look for. Here's what human trafficking actually is. Exactly. So what? What, what other education initiatives is the Mekong Club doing in this space? Well, we do a lot of presentations at conferences and panels and uh, big events to get in front of the private sector. Um, you know, and the, the interesting thing about that is that, you know, we as I said, we don't pick our causes. Our causes pick us. And so out of an audience of 100 people, maybe 10 people will come up afterwards and say, you know, I don't know what it is about this issue, but it really, you know, it really bothers me that this yeah. exists. What can I do to help? And those are the people that we work with. If they work for banks or manufacturers or hospitality or tech, it doesn't matter. These are the ambassadors that we work with within the private sector in order to uh, to empower them to influence their organization from within. And so a lot of what we try to do is to find those individuals and then use that as a basis of then getting access to companies to really help them to understand this. So companies need to address this because if they don't and they find their name in the newspaper because of some, you know, uh, sweatshop situation or something else, it can have a devastating impact on them. So we use that as leverage to help them to understand that there are a lot of things that they need to do. They need to make sure that their C-suite understands this. They need to ensure that they have policies and procedures in place, training, risk assessment, uh, 
auditing that goes deep and identifies what the issues are. And by us helping them in order to walk down that path, they protect their business, but at the same time, they're they're helping to protect the world as well. Because if anything is found, it's addressed immediately, and then that eliminates that form of modern slavery in this particular case. And that goes all the way through to the supply chain, right? Looking all the way back to suppliers of goods and and services uh, for those bigger companies. So, you know, up until recently, most major brands were just looking at tier one of their supply chain. Now, a typical supply chain, tier one is where you assemble the, the item, tier two is where the component parts are, and tier three is where the raw materials are coming. The legislation, the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act, the UK Modern Slavery Act, the Australia Act, the German Act, all say you have to go all the way down to the lowest part of your supply chain and know what's happening there. So all of a sudden, you have a company that was auditing, let's say, 2,000 tier one factories. They've been doing it for 35 years. There's no issues. Now they have to add an additional 8,000 audits to their repertoire, and they've never looked at tier two or three. And so the potential for there being issues and problems is, is, is very high. And so you see a lot of companies that are beginning to share audit information to be more cost effective. So that one company says to the other, we're both using the same zipper company. You do the zippers, we'll do the shoelaces, somebody else do the rivets. And as a result of that, we're seeing much more rationalization within supply chains. That makes a lot of sense because so many of those component pieces would come from the same source. Exactly. So then if we're looking at this issue on on a global basis, one thing we've discussed on this podcast is the danger of creating holes in border security, that if you're able to smuggle goods across borders, then essentially the the good itself just becomes a risk versus reward function for the criminals. So it might be, as you said before, cigarettes, it could be alcohol, it could be weapons, it could be people. Is that what you're seeing, that these groups are quite fluid in what they're willing to move across borders? Yeah, I mean, I've seen situations where people are being smuggled from one country to another, and on their back is a bat uh, knapsack that's filled with wildlife trafficking things or cigarettes right. or something else, uh, or arms in some cases. Multitasking, right? Yeah, so, well, you know, again, if 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 the group of people that you're moving is hidden already, and they then become the uh, mules for carrying uh, illicit uh, drugs or something else, why not do that? And this allows for the profits to be maximized uh, as part of that process. And and what do you see the role of some of the, the current tech platforms being? So the social media platforms, the, the other ways in, in which people are living their lives online right now, do uh, is that activity happening online as well? Well, in, in many ways, uh, part of the issue is that social networking platforms are the recruitment sites for people into forced labor or to sex trafficking, where a person is identified, they develop a relationship thinking that the person they're dealing with is a friend, they develop trust, and then they cheat them either into going to a place and then getting stuck in a terrible job or, you know, ending up uh, having a 15-year-old girl who goes to a cafe thinking she's going to meet a 16-year-old boy. Actually, the trafficker was a 55-year-old guy pretending to be a 16-year-old. When she gets there, uh, she's kidnapped, taken away, put into a brothel, and then basically told that if you try to leave, your entire family will be killed. So, you know, it's it's online social networking that will allow for this possibility to take place. Having said that, there are other tools that are beneficial to address this. For example, uh, using facial recognition to identify 
uh, people who disappeared who might be in, um, you know, sex uh, promotion websites. Uh, and then you, you right. do a search across, you know, a vast number of these websites to see if there's a match. And actually what's happening is a lot of 14, 15 year olds are being identified as a result of this. So technology can be used either in a positive way or as part of the problem. And, and we mentioned the pandemic before, but but what has been the impact of of the COVID pandemic and closed borders on on human trafficking around the world? Well, uh, the the number was forty million until about uh, six months ago, and then the new number is fifty million, and it's because of the pandemic. Wow. So let's say that you were a worker in a factory in Bangladesh and you were making good money and you were supporting eight or nine other people, and all of a sudden COVID hits, the factory closes, you don't work for two years, you run out of your savings. You borrow money when you can't pay that back. Traffickers come and say, I need a family member. They're going to end up in a brothel or in a sweatshop or in a fishing boat. And so the vulnerability because of desperation has significantly increased the number of trafficking victims. And I guess you, you were talking about people looking for jobs and, and that idea of grabbing people who think they're going for a legitimate job across uh, across a border somewhere. With, with people now looking quite desperately for jobs after the pandemic, that would really open up that vulnerability. And you know, the interesting thing that prevents prevention from taking place is that across Southeast Asia, one of the biggest problems we face is that a person does get trafficked, but when they eventually get home, they lie about their experience because they don't want to lose face. As a result of that, you go to Myanmar and you say to a community that, you know, there's the possibility that you can be trafficked. And a lot of people say, well, those guys over there, they were all trafficked and they had a good experience. And I knew that all of those guys had been trafficked, but wow. there's no way that they can go and say that, you know, I did this because they'd lose face. And, and that's an extremely important part of the process. So how do you get people to listen to what you're saying if everyone who migrated, even if they got trafficked, comes back and says it was a good thing? And there's probably a strong degree of fear there as well, right? In in making sure that they don't adversely report on it so that then they're not their their safety's not jeopardized. Absolutely. You know, and the thing is about human trafficking is threats are one of the most effective ways of getting people to do things. If you think that the person who said they're going to kill your parents is is legitimate, if you don't do something and you love your parents, you're gonna to listen to what they have you to do say. What they say. So yeah. um that's just the reality of the situation. And it really is preying on weak and, and vulnerable and desperate people who, who are in a scenario that they can't get themselves out of. So they really are preying on people who, who can't do anything about it. And, you know, I, I've seen uh, pictures, for example, of the uh, scenario that I mentioned about the scam centers where you have a 20-year-old kid who, you know, thought he was going to have a great job in Cambodia. And all of a sudden, for the first time, he's facing this extreme trauma, you know, people beating him over the head, you know, tasering him, you know, punching him in the face and so forth. And you just the sheer fear in their face because yeah. these these videos are used basically to say, if you don't do something, this is going to be you next. And then they leak into the real world. And so they're available. And so, wow, you know, what human beings will do to other human beings. I, I It just it breaks my heart sometimes to see this. So Matt, what do we do about it? What's what's your wish list of, of things that we could do to try to make a difference? I think that number one, we have to raise awareness uh, and help people to understand what we're talking about is real and tangible in relative to them. 
So, for example, you know, sex trafficking, it's very far from the average person. There's no connection. But if we're talking about supply chains and a certain percentage of goods that are produced with forced labor circumstances, we as consumers buy things and are contributing to that. So we have to be part of the solution. That message hasn't really gotten out there. It's kind of like global warming wasn't taken seriously until we were told that we as individuals are contributing through our carbon footprint. So that's one thing that has to happen. And this has to be a very kind of uh, assertive, true set of uh, information related to what is the issue, what needs to be done, and how can you as an individual or corporation or entity address this? Another thing that I think is very much needed is there needs to be much more emphasis on the financial side of things. If this is made to be something that is financially not viable, criminals won't do it. And so this idea of further strengthening the nexus between law enforcement and financial institutions, and perhaps changing the laws to allow for privacy uh, information to be given over to law enforcement, like we, what we see with anti-terrorism type things, would go a long way to being able to address this particular type of thing. Another thing is uh, having research that really looks into the nexus between the various criminal activities. How do they work? You know, how do criminal um, networks uh, basically franchise and how do they work with other uh, criminal networks? Uh, uh, very little of that is known. But if you find people who were criminals who kind of left the criminal life and you interview them, you can collect tremendous amounts of information. As I mentioned, we used to go into the prisons and collect information from traffickers because they would tell us all kinds of things about what we needed to know in order to address the crime. So that type of information is super relevant and important. And it strikes me, Matt, as a, as a former intelligence practitioner, that, that there's a strong role there for proactive intelligence operations too in in trying to infiltrate some of these networks, work out how they operate, work out some of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and um, ultimately take them down. Absolutely. I mean, there is so much within the in intelligence community that can be kind of transferred over to addressing the issue of human trafficking that would really be a game changer. Well, Matt, we're just about finished. Is there anything else that you wanted to raise for our listeners? I just want to reiterate, 50 million people in modern slavery, more slaves today than any other time in history, we're helping less than a half percent. This is one of the most horrific crimes that uh, human beings deal with. And it's 2023, and this just shouldn't exist. We need to raise more awareness, get more people involved, and draw a line in the sand and say, enough is enough. This has to end, and figure out a way to make that happen. And and I've been working on this for 35 years. Uh, that's my hope and dream, that this will eventually happen. And I think eventually we'll get to a critical tipping point where this particular crime will be important enough for the world to really step up and making the, make a difference. And I'm really hoping that that happens sometime soon rather than later. Let's hope so. Uh, I just want to flag for our listeners as well. If you've found yourself in a human trafficking situation, if you know of someone who might be linked to this or caught up in, in a situation like this, you can always report it via Crime Stoppers. We can provide that information anonymously onto law enforcement partners and help to try to uh, get something done in that situation. You can follow the links at crimestoppersinternational.org to find our reporting form and, and reach out to us. So that's it for today's episode, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to speak with you today. 
Thanks for so much that, that you've done in this space uh, and everything that you're doing to help make our community safer uh, and for sharing your thoughts on, on what it would be a very busy time for you. And thank you, Crime Stoppers, for doing the amazing work that you do. I'm a huge fan, and I, I really think it's an organization that really helps to bring awareness of all kinds of crimes to a lot of people and to address it as well. So thank you so much for that. Next time in Exposing the Illegal Empire. If we really want to paralyze a terrorist group, then we have to target their sources of revenue. And illicit trade is the king of terrorist revenue, so that we will give a good fight against terrorists. Exposing the Illegal Empire from Crime Stoppers International, supported by JTI. Please follow and rate on your podcast app. To find out more about any of the subjects featured in our podcast, please visit theillegalempire.com and check us out on Twitter at Empire Illegal. Mm-hmm.